This is the Frog Tour Podcast. I am Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Treeblosser. And we are here to chat about TCU moving to 2-0 and after thumping Purdue in Western Lafayette, Indiana by the score of 34-13. to And it could have been way worse had TCU been able to maybe throw a football or not give up a garbage time touchdown. I don't you know. say that, but I am here for a TCU team that never throws the football again at this point. If you're going to run for 350 yards against a Big Ten opponent, I feel pretty good about your chances. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but it, you know, and as much fun as it was to watch Shewo just like consistently drag bodies across the ground, I kind of like seeing the ball fly through the air every once in a while. Yeah, not and on it's probably point. not a not a long term solution for success either. It's definitely not in the Big Twelve. Definitely on the Big 12. We're going to get into TCU's victory over Purdue. We're going to preview TCU's maybe last game against SMU, but probably not. And we're going to talk a lot more about things around the Big 12 as well. But first, Melissa, we should probably tell the listeners, the lovely listeners, that we will be back at the Punchbowl Social live on September 30th. That's the Monday before the Iowa State football game. Live at Punchbowl Social on 1100 Folk, Folk Street. Um, over off West 7th uh, at 6.30. Come get some great food, have some drinks, talk TCU with us. Yeah, hang out 30th. with us. We don't it's have fun. a lot of friends. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's fun. Well, you don't, like, go off telling people that. Oh, uh, you know, I say that they probably already know, but. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Anyways, come be our friends at the Punchbowl Social on September 30th at 6.30 so we can chat about TCU football together and have some good food and some good drinks because we want you to do that with us and we want to do that with you. We think it will be a lot of fun. Melissa, you went to West Lafayette for the football game. Credential. I did indeed. Very person of importance. Um, very important person. Tell me a little bit about your experience at the stadium you know, what was it like? I, I'm kind of on a fan experience kick lately, I think, because of all of the things that Donati is doing. And I've got a little note about something that he tweeted out today, too, for us to talk about. Um, but tell me a little bit about your experience uh, at Purdue. It was great. I mean, legitimately, uh, when I think of all the, all the places I've gotten to watch TCU athletics play, all the experiences I've gotten to have, um, it, it's a top 10, maybe top five for me all time, just from a, a start to finish, everything I got to do. Um, it produced great. It's a beautiful campus. I wish I'd had a little more time uh, to spend on the campus itself leading up to the game. But as far as, um, you know, just, just being a, a beautiful place, a great college town, an awesome stadium that, that was just gorgeous with a beautiful sunset coming through, it, it was elite as far as this does and, uh, just just overall kindness of people and ease of getting around. It was smaller than I expected. Um, I found that to be really interesting. You know, you hear 60,000 people, which is considerably bigger than what TCU Stadium holds. But, man, it looked a heck of a lot smaller. Um, I think that, that when we think of Amon G. Carter and we think of all of the, the special things that they've done to make that stadium, we don't even necessarily get to appreciate just how gorgeous it is compared to a lot of other places. Uh, Ross Aid was awesome. It, it was nice, but it's a single bowl on one side. Um, you know, the press box is on the sixth floor, but but it doesn't feel like it does at TCU, which I think is on the fourth floor as far as just being surrounded by seats and, and people. It's not like that at all. And, and it's a very open bowl kind of a setup, too. Uh, 
the screen was much smaller than TCU's, so good job, Jeremiah and Gary. You'd be proud of that one. Um, but it, it was uh, – the people were awesome. The fan base was great. The students were super, super into it until the game was over. They have a DJ in the student section. That was cool. Their band was uh, elite. I mean, legitimately elite. But I do want to say that some of them were giving us a hard time for copying, quote-unquote, copying their train whistle. And uh, they have an electric whistle that blows out of their scoreboard. They don't have anything like the Froghorn. So I think TC wins in that department for sure. But overall, um, A-plus a plus, uh, visit, A-plus opportunity. Got to eat at the famous Elmo Steakhouse in uh, Indy on my way home, uh, which was also exceptional. And uh, I would say I'd highly recommend it to anybody that has a chance. But we know they're making the return trip to us, and it's not for 11 years. So, uh, at the very least, be nice to a Purdue fan when they come to town because they were super, super gracious to TC fans. That's really good to hear. And, I I mean, I just saw pictures and pictures and pictures of tons of TCU fans making their way up there. So, that was really cool to see. I think Purdue fans were maybe a little surprised by how many TCU fans actually traveled up for the game. Um, but yeah. I'm glad that it was a good turnout for a team that we never really encounter just in the kind of way that we go in college football. Uh, a couple of things that I noticed on Twitter – that I wanted to get your opinion on. Uh, first of all, did they have an inflatable train that the team ran out through? Because I think I saw a picture of that. And the second thing is, was TCU's locker room detached from the stadium? Because I think I saw a picture of the frogs coming out of what looked like a gigantic shed. Okay, so so here's like, again, I said, these were just lovely people. Um, but there are some things that are a little bit rinky-dink about Purdue football, unfortunately, and that is absolutely two of them that you mentioned. They ran out of a, an inflatable train, uh, very high school style. Uh, it was a little hokey. It was cute, but cute isn't really screen big-time college football to me. And then, yeah, the, the TCU locker room was basically a portable, um, like you had in high school. <laughs> And we had to do the interviews outdoors, which is fine because it was a beautiful night. Um, but the band was still playing. There was like an hour after the game, the band was still playing. There were fireworks going off. It was, it was, if you've ever listened to a, an interview with Schloss after a TCU baseball game when they're tearing down the field, uh, it the was louder than still that. Blasting in the stadium. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it was kind of like that, which was interesting. Um, so, so those were a little bit, uh, it was, I don't want to say it's disappointing, but it was a little bit surprising to see that. Um, everything I've heard, though, is that, is that they really did treat the TC players well. It wasn't like they, you know, didn't turn on the AC or something, because we know no one would do that. No, of course um, not. But, we've got data. But, we've got the data to prove. We've that got the data. But it wasn't a – we're very, very spoiled at TCU um, with the amenities and as are, are the players. And I've never seen the visitor's locker room, but I can about guarantee it didn't look like that. So – yeah. Well, and I wonder, too, like I saw the, some of those pictures and my initial reaction was like, wow, this is the this is the group of people who were calling us little brothers. And yeah, on the other hand, I also wanted to extend some compassion because I probably am just super jaded from growing up in Texas. Sure. And like, yeah, that's a Texas high school football thing. But up there in the Midwest, it's probably not that common for high schoolers to have like those kinds of amenities for their football programs. Yeah, and so I maybe think that's that really is like a point. kind of like an like that's a kind of a cool thing for them to do, and I'm sure that they're not the only Big Ten school that does something like that. I'm sure Indiana has something like that in Illinois and other colleges around the country, but maybe it's just because of our location and our context that it did seem a little bit 
cute, as you said. I feel I feel like that was a little bit of shade that you were throwing by comparing them to Indiana, who they hate, um, and Illinois. Oh, that makes that does make me. I, there's one more point that I absolutely need to okay. make because this bothered me all weekend, and I didn't say anything on Twitter because I didn't want to be that guy. But I'm going to go ahead and say it on the podcast now. Do so it. If you're listening to the podcast. You were getting insider scoop. It's super, super important. Everyone was talking about how classy it was as the Purdue band to play the TCU fight song before the game. Okay? Great move. TCU band didn't travel. Everyone's thinking, how nice. Well, what you don't know is, first of all, they played it incorrectly. It was slow and droll and boring. Second of all, and I know this for a fact from a former student of mine who is now a current student at Purdue, uh, and shout out to everyone who donated to uh, Katie's cause. Appreciate that on Twitter. Um... They play that so that they can all sit there and boo during it. So the entire fan base gathers around. They play the opponent's fight song. Everyone boos it just lavishly, and they play it wrong, and it's like this whole big troll job that they do. So while everybody was so appreciative and thought it was so nice, no, friends, they were laughing at us. And that was quite all right because at the end, we were certainly laughing at them. Yeah, they didn't get to blow that electric train horn a whole lot in the midst of the game. They did not. Um, and that was disappointing for them because they have the greatest football player of all time on their team, Rondell Moore. Um, but unfortunately for Rondell Moore, uh, he didn't have his starting quarterback to throw him the football, uh, and there was an inexperienced offensive line in front of that redshirt freshman quarterback, Jack Plummer, um, who did not do a very good job of blocking pretty much any TCU defensive lineman at any point throughout the night. Um, and so let's start there with our breakdown of the game, Melissa, because I think it's important to note right out of the gate how dominant this TCU defense was, even in spite of the fact that you can say, oh, well, they didn't have, uh, Purdue didn't have their starting running back because he got hurt before the season, and Elijah Sindelar didn't play because of his concussion and all this other stuff. TCU had their best defensive performance since the Chick-fil-A Bowl on Saturday as far as yards allowed is concerned, as far as rushing yards allowed is concerned. I saw that stat, and I was a little shocked by it, and I don't know if I fully embrace it yet. But regardless of the other team, think of some of the other teams that TCU has played since the Chick-fil-A Bowl. The best defensive performance since 2014. That says a lot, I think, about this squad. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's a that's a huge stat. Um, when you think about you know even some of the bad teams that they played, but like Kansas and how they dominated that to see them be better than they were in that game mm-hmm. uh, against a significantly higher quality opponent, it's pretty impressive. Uh, we've been saying all along that this this TC defense has the tan- the chance to be one of the most elite of the Gary Patterson era from a talent and a complete package and we saw the tip of what they can do and and they took advantage of a freshman quarterback they took advantage of some key players missing but like you said I mean it's not like these were not highly recruited players um it's not like TC wasn't playing a true freshman on the other side it it, Mm -hmm. it's not like every team doesn't have injuries uh they were dominant from start to finish in a way that that we really haven't seen since that 2014 performance and the scary thing was is that after the game, Patterson said it, it was very much in the vein of, yeah, I thought this was a pretty decent performance, but we're still a long way from where I expect us to be at the end of the year, and, and that's got to be really, really exciting for Frog fans. 
Oh yeah, that got me fired up when I read that in post-game stuff. Uh, the fact that this squad can come out and hold a team to zero rushing yards over the course of three quarters, and that was like an okay thing for them yeah. to do. Two hundred was it two hundred three total yards of offense, and that was like, yeah, you know, that's we did that, but we'll get better. And you know, I mean, well, it, they're gonna have they're gonna have opportunities to to improve on that number. It's gonna come way more difficult I think once you get to Big 12 play for sure but uh, just some of the things that you're seeing on the defensive side of the ball like Trayvon Merrick's just ridiculous interception where he just literally took the ball away from Rondell Moore or Jeff Gladney recognizing the double pass and getting back to a spot where he could make an interception Ross Blacklock blowing up a double team in the middle and making a sack uh, Garrett Wallow and D. Winters just flying all over the field, and you're doing this without a guy that you were expecting to start at cornerback. You're doing this, you know, uh, with two new defensive ends, with a true freshman corner, with a sophomore safety, and a true freshman linebacker. Like this is a young squad that has just unbelievable talent, and the fact that their talent is showing out so early in the season, um, I think TCU fans have to get really, really excited about the potential of this unit. Well, and even just that Gladney play, it was a gimme interception in a lot of ways, but we have seen TCU get burned on that type of trick play so many times. Mm -hmm. I'm a veteran like him in the secondary who uh, was able to read, diagnose, like you said, and then then turn around and get in the right position. And and we got to talk to Jeff after the game, which is not always a guarantee because Jeff (laughs) likes to talk, and uh, certain people in TCU's leadership do not like uh, their players to talk. Um, and, and he, he kind of said, I saw it coming and I turned around and the ball was right there. And, and so he didn't say it was lucky, but he was like, that was just a matter of, of knowing what was coming and being well prepared. Um, but you know, they also, those players were well aware of what it meant to, to face a, a true freshman quarterback. Um, one of the reasons Gladney isn't allowed to talk very often to the media is, is what he said when he came out, when he was asked about the difference between facing Plummer and Sindelar. And he's like, oh yeah, we knew that was fresh meat. And, and when we, we've got fresh meat, like, we want to eat. And uh, another another comment that he kind of made in, in that regard was uh, it was obvious that that they were trying to make a statement. They, you know, he didn't he had nothing but great things to say about Rondale Moore, but, but he definitely had heard all week that, that Moore was going to go off against the Frogs. And mm-hmm. he was part of a contingent of guys that wasn't going to let that happen. So... Uh, while they may have been aware, one other interesting note uh, is that Patterson apparently was not aware that Plummer was playing until, according to him, the third series uh, when yeah. he had to lean over on the sideline and ask, so who's playing quarterback for these guys? <laughs> which, which just tells you, first of all, like how good the CC defense is and, uh, and, and how little Gary Patterson cares about who you're putting on the field. He's going to stop whoever it is. Yeah, he focuses on, on scheme and formation, I guess, and just, you know, whatever. Well, we're gonna stop you. We're gonna we're gonna do some other things, I guess. But I, that was that was funny. I bet he was. Um, I've I've the sense that maybe Patterson was embellishing a little bit there. I, yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> but you know, at, at the same time, he obviously knew that they had a, a distinct advantage on that side of the football, and it showed literally all night long, except for three plays, uh, and that's two big gains by the tight end for Purdue, whose name is escaping me right now. And then a long touchdown pass with a couple minutes left in the game where it's like the first time all night Keon Stewart, true freshman corner, finally got beat. 
Uh, and it was still a play where, like, Parker Workman had gotten into the backfield and probably should have made a sack before the ball yeah. got out. But, you know, I mean, realistically, other than that, what can you really say other than praise towards this defense? Yeah, I mean, you've got a true freshman that's given up a, a pair of garbage time touchdowns, but you've got Julius Lewis expected back next weekend. And so yeah. uh, what, what Keon Stewart did through these first two games, um, I, I think, gives you a lot of hope. And, and if you're going to give up a touchdown on a broken play, let it be late in the game when the score is already pretty much settled. Uh, it, it's it, Because, and again, we talked about this after uh, the Pine Bluff game, is, is there something really great for a coach about winning a game pretty easily but still having a lot of tape to throw in your players' faces and saying you're not good enough yet? Oh, yeah, and then you've still got another team coming down the pipe that is a rival and they're undefeated and they've looked pretty good through three games and so you have that motivation to get better quickly. Yeah. Because SMU is coming and they are 3-0. and um, Yeah, but and they are not a joke, <laughs> unfortunately. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, um, I guess that's true. We don't really know yet. We don't know yet, but let's get back to the Purdue game for just a, a couple more things. I want to do talk about some of the um, some of the downsides to the game on Saturday night from a TCU perspective, and just it looked for the most part like pretty much every TCU receiver not named Jalen Rager had hands for had feet for hands. Like they there were like by my count at least seven, maybe eight or nine drop passes for both Delton and Duggan. And the reality is when the passing game in its current state is as anemic as it is, like you have to catch balls when they're at, when they're on target. Mm-hmm. And that's just not happening right now. And that's been through both games. There have been significant drop passes that could have you know, put this game away much earlier than it was put away. Yeah, and, and I think that, that so much of this is going to be going forward. Um, how much can you rely on the defense to win the game? And... I think you can win a lot of games in the conference playing the way TCU played on Saturday night, but ultimately they're going to have to establish a quarterback. And we saw Patterson talk about that a little bit today in his his, uh, his weekly press conference is that he went away from saying two quarterbacks are going to play, two quarterbacks are going to play, which is what we've been hearing you know, mm-hmm. since, since fall camp really, um, and said more along the lines of if we see a guy that's in rhythm, if he's moving the ball and, he, and he's doing well, we're going to stay with him. Um, he talked about wanting to start the game a lot faster than they've done. And, look, it, it's really hard to say that Max Duggan has beaten out Alex Delton because what Max Max has not put up impressive stats. It's not like he goes out there and it's very, very obvious that this is a guy who can go and take you to a Big 12 championship game. But the biggest difference to me is what the offense moves like when Max is yeah. under center. And I, he's not a complete quarterback yet Uh, he's got to figure out how to put some touch on the ball he's got to figure out um you know how to how to get the ball out a little bit quicker make his reads Uh, Patterson likes to talk about throwing guys open as opposed to throwing to open guys and and that's an area where a true freshman struggles um but if you want to start fast man you pick up a lot more yardage with Doug and under center than you do with Dalton I mean that's the, the offense just looks more confident with him behind him. And, and I don't know if that's a mind trick or what, but to me, the rhythm was 100% favor of, of Max Duggan on Saturday night. I think so, too. I mean, uh, they didn't score on an Alex Delton-led drive on Saturday, and they scored on the majority of Max Duggan's 11 drives that he had. Uh, and I think it's more than just like a confidence thing for the offense. I think that other teams... I mean, the book is out on Alex Delton. 
and he's a great running quarterback. He is an incredible leader in the locker room and on the field. But people know about his deficiencies in the passing game. That's real, and we've seen those in the first two weeks now as well. And so I wonder if even just the threat of being able to throw the ball opens things up for the offense when Max is on the field in a way that it just doesn't when Alex is on the field. Uh, I think I saw on Twitter today someone talking a little bit about what they noticed the safeties doing um, when um, Duggan was on the field versus when Delton was on the field. And just the positioning of the safeties even opened things up for the running game when Max was on the field that weren't there when Alex was on the field. And so, I mean, it felt at times, too, like, oh, this offense that Max is in right now with some of these zone reads and him keeping the ball and running it, like, these feel like Alex Delton plays. But the possibility is is that those plays are available to you because of the formations that you're seeing on defense and because mm-hmm. of the way that they're, they have to at least honor the fact that Max can throw the ball downfield. Yeah, we, we haven't seen him connect, but we've absolutely seen the arm talent. Mm-hmm. And, and touch is learned. Touch isn't a skill, but the ability to throw the ball the way that Max Duggan throws it is a skill, and not everybody has that. Yeah. Um, I think just based on Patterson's comments, unless Delton has an unbelievable practice this week or unless something significantly changes, I would not at all be surprised to be doing the first starter uh, or the starter for TCU Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounded like he's leaning that way. I'm sure we'll get even more clarity on Tuesday um, around that issue. I'm sure someone's going to ask because someone will always ask, and Patterson will always get frustrated. But I think I said it last <laughs> week on the on the podcast. Like you, we're going to keep asking that question until there's like a legitimate answer. Um, you know, but he told the us good thing, he told us on uh, after the game Saturday that he knows we're going to keep asking, but he's going to keep giving the same answer, and it's going to be that way all season. So we'll okay. see. Well, at least he, was we all, little, he was a little snarky about it. It was kind of funny. We at all least laugh. we all know that we're in the middle of a standoff then. Yeah, like right. We all, every, every side has acknowledged that they're going to just stand firm and do what they've, can, they've been doing. Um, but the good thing about um, the lack of a passing game, I guess, is that it's given us the real opportunity to confirm for everybody across the country that Darius Anderson is completely healthy again. Because that dude was yeah. an absolute monster on Saturday, 16 carries, 100 and, was it 179 rushing yards and two and two rushing touchdowns. He looked fast. He had great vision. He showed incredible strength and explosiveness. He was phenomenal. He was the Darius Anderson that we saw against Ohio State in that game on Saturday, and that was Absolutely. a really good thing to see. And it's not huge. only that, but Shewo dragging bodies all over the field. You know, Patterson said after the game, he's proven that he can get us the tough yard. He's earned his time on the field. He had 18 carries for like 106 yards rushing and a touchdown. Realistically, you know, that takes a lot of pressure off of a young quarterback who's still trying to figure some things out. And with the schedule, the way it kind of falls falls out ahead of you these next couple weeks, that gives you a lot of wiggle room to experiment with Duggan and let him get the training wheels going and get those training wheels off. And you know that these guys are going to maybe kind of buoy the offense a little bit in the meantime. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's nothing better than having a good running game for either a quarterback that struggles to throw the ball or for a true freshman quarterback. Uh, and, and seeing Darius Anderson, who Patterson has been raving about just the kind of shape that he's in, the speed that he has, 
uh, the way that he looks, the way that he's been working, to see him really get that game under his belt was pretty awesome. Um, he was. We talked to him after the game as well, and and you know one of the things we love about Darius is his confidence, and and he can be. You know, he he play. He's he's a little bit of a running back, right? You know, he's got a little bit of that attitude to him, and he was so humble after the game in a way that I've never seen. Um, his confidence has always been earned. He, he's not a he's not a, a jerk of a guy by any stretch. But mm-hmm. listening to him uh, talk about how hard he's worked, you can tell that like he's feeling the fulfillment of a really long journey, and he's trying to appreciate the moment. Um, and when when we asked him about you know him having such a huge game and and Shewo actually getting more carries, and he couldn't speak highly enough about Shewo, how important their relationship is, how how much it means that they both can be successful. You know how it's so much better for their their long term health and success that that they know that both of them can go in and get the job done. Uh, they they don't care who has the ball. They just want to see TCU win, and I think that there's kind of there's something special about that last ride and and knowing that this is their last go around and wanting to make the most of it and, and doing having team success is going to be more fulfilling for them. So uh, to to go out and each put up over a hundred yards was was pretty special, not just for fans to watch and appreciate, but it seemed like it was pretty special for those two kids too. It is, and it, you know, I, you, I think you nailed it right there. And just talking about that kind of one last ride mentality and the brotherhood that comes with being on a football team and being in the trenches with each other for so long, like that has to be something so special for those guys. And to both be fully healthy, and to both know that they're going to get theirs, and it's not a competition between the two of them, but it really is this. Let's see how high we can go with this thing yeah. one last time around the sun, you know, and. Well. Um, it's just it's a really cool opportunity I think for TCU fans too to cherish and value these two guys who have given you know so much sweat and blood to this program and they're both finally healthy for their senior year. Yeah. Well, they've both just been through so much. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's injuries. I mean, obviously, Shaylo's you know legal situation, which we found out this morning, has been resolved and there'll be no further further charges or anything. But that might be his own doing. But. Uh, I think that you gain a different kind of appreciation when you when you've had to fight, and both of those guys have have fought, and uh, I, I think that that they're committed to to not just having personal success, but to making the most of this opportunity. And, and I expect uh, this just hopefully to be the start of something really special for both of those guys. Yeah, I think it will be, and they have a chance in these next couple of games too against some run defenses that aren't that great to really kind of establish themselves as a two-headed force. Um, and that, like I said already, that just takes a lot of pressure off of the other guys that are trying to get things done on offense. And, you know, you, you pair a, a dominant running game with a defense like we, we think this defense has the potential for, and that is a, that is a winning combination yeah. almost regardless of, of your situation. E- even in the Big 12, yeah. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we saw that a lot in 2018, too, when the quarterbacks were so inconsistent you could still rely on the running game. I mean, I, the Cheez-It Bowl is a, is a really nice meme for everybody to kind of point at and laugh, but, you know, you had a quarterback there who was not supposed to be starting that game, and what did mm-hmm. Shewo Alanalua do? He ran them to victory, and they forced enough turnovers to make sure that it stuck, you know? Yeah. And you don't want every game to look like the Cheez-It Bowl, and a game against Oklahoma is not going to look like the Cheez-It Bowl, but at least if you can do things like control – um, the time of possession and the pace of the game, like you, you put yourself in a position to have success. And that's something that I think the last few years has been really hit or miss with TCU football teams. 
Well, and I think you're you're gonna. I'm gonna get to do the segue this time, which is you know a rarity for me because I'm not as good at them as you. But I'm so you ready. can't have that kind of dominant run game unless you are winning the battle in the trenches too. Yeah. And uh, one thing that we've seen is is last year that offensive line was was pretty subpar most of the year. Part of that was injuries and shuffling around, but uh, this year that offensive line looks downright nasty in the best possible way mm-hmm. um and and when we were talking to patterson post game one of the things that he mentioned was he said you know i told you guys look where my seniors are if you want to know where we're going to be good look where the seniors are in that offensive line and those two running backs man those are, that's a lot yeah. of senior players and that that seven guys and so uh they they look controlled they look dominant um we talked to coy mcmillan after the game He's exactly what you want in a center, and that he gave us absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> he just he just kind of <laughs> stood there and told us he loved football and that he was working hard and he was proud of everybody working hard behind him uh, until uh, until uh, Drew asked him about being a tight end in high school and his eyes kind of lit up a little bit. But um, it's uh, it's a really veteran group that doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, and uh, feels really confident in everybody around them and. Uh, consistency in that unit makes everything better no matter who's playing quarterback no matter who's running the ball no matter who's going out to catch passes it really does because i mean we have seen years where tcu has lost the trench battle uh and it just it you know this it's like football 101 basically but if you're not having success on the offensive line or on the defensive line then it, it impacts other things negatively and to know that you've got Lucas Niang kind of locking it down at right tackle, you know, they're still maybe figuring things out at left tackle a little bit where, you know, have Anthony McKinney and Quasi White um, kind of rotating in, in the uh, Purdue game. But both guys seem pretty capable. And then you've got two guards that are that have not made mistakes in the first two games this year. And they're mm-hmm. going to see some way better defensive fronts than they've seen in the first two weeks. But... That gives the squad confidence when you're starting to really figure out how to work together and work as a unit. Um, it's good to get these two games under your belt if you're an offensive line uh, and you have that senior leadership and, and that talent really across the board. Yeah, So it's absolutely. really cool. And I do love, too, speaking of the defensive line for just a second, one of those pictures that you took that you tweeted about, um, some of your defensive favorite photos, the one where it's Ross and uh, Corey Bethley, and yeah. they are both – very obviously getting held <laughs> yeah. just like yeah. both have both have absolutely knocked their guys back and into a bad position and they're both just desperately holding on to ross and Corey to protect uh plumber from the destruction that would be both of them converging on him at the same time yep kind of funny it was, it was a great picture yeah and, and it was a great picture because of, of what was being happening and I mean, you could have called holding. You can call it on every play, but you could have called, called holding on every play Saturday night. Oh, there were a um, couple. And you know what? I don't blame there them. There were a couple. <laughs> there were a couple where I was like, ooh, Ross probably should have had a sack right there, but he got held. And, oh, they didn't call it. Okay. But then it was well, like an it, incomplete pass or, you know, a run for negative gain. So it's like, does it really It know, is really, it really, really fun watching Ross Blacklock work because he's not – getting a lot of stats he's not gonna have a lot of opportunities but man there are two guys and someone chipping on him every single snap and it is a glorious thing to watch him just take on two or three grown men and put them on the ground with ease it's wild it's wild i forgot you know i think a lot of people forgot like how elite 
that guy is just because he was out last year with that Achilles injury. But he has come back and just been like immediately his old self, maybe even more disruptive than he was two years ago. And it is such a delight to know that you have a guy along the defensive line who is taking up so much space, so much real estate in the minds of multiple offensive linemen on the other Mm -hmm. team. Because that frees up these young, and maybe not so young, but just these new defensive ends and Shamik Blackshear and O'Shawn Mathis to go one-on-one and really be able to kind of get into a rhythm on the edge. But, you know, and Ross doesn't have, like, the greatest stats, but he does already have... Uh, two sacks this year, you know. Yeah, that's and true. That is true. So he's on hashtag well, on pace for a double digit sack season, and from the defensive my, tackle spot, that's pretty impressive. Impressive. One of my favorite things leading up to the game is all the Purdue fans told us how there's no way our safeties and our linebackers could run with Rondale Moore, and me answering, you do realize that our defensive tackle runs a four seven. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's and, and Ross is a freak, obviously. Sure. Um, but. But that dude, you can't tell me that dude couldn't drop back into coverage and, and hang with the tight end for a little bit if he needed to. Well, it helps when most of your safeties are converted corners and most of your linebackers are converted yes. safeties. So For sure. You know, position flexibility, right? That's what, yep. what Gary Patterson loves. And, you know, people are unreasonable about their sports teams. Like, we've been very unreasonable, I think, about TCU before. Uh, and so, obviously, Purdue fans. Yeah, definitely. You are always the voice of reason. For sure. Um, <laughs> really speaking about myself there. But, you know, obviously Purdue fans are going to build up Rondell Moore. He's a very good, very talented wide receiver. He's one of the best wide receivers in college football right now. But you also have to, like, assess your opponent a little bit to make an informed statement. And they were not making informed statements leading up to this game about the talent level on TCU's defense. You know, I think I think we, sh- we get a little bit of credit for ourselves when we talk about, like, the Oklahoma game later this year and just understanding the talent on OU side like yeah Jalen Rager is great and I love Jalen Rager with all my heart CD Lamb is also a really really freaking good wide receiver right and it's like okay I'm not going to go out and make blatant bold statements about Jalen Rager when I know that that's the guy on the other side of the field who's doing some incredible things too yeah like it's just it's like common like be an informed person I guess is what I'm just trying to say we should take a a break because we're uh we've we've talked for a lot and we should probably take a break at this point Uh, So we are going to do that, and then we will be right back to shift our attention to the game coming up on Saturday. All right, Melissa, it is SMU hate week. Is that even even really a hate week anymore? Is where I want to start this. Yeah, I don't like SMU. I don't like losing to SMU. Well, no, um, it's it's humiliating and embarrassing to lose to SMU at yeah. this point. I mean, obviously, the the trajectories of these programs have intersected and go, been going in different directions for the majority of their time when they've played each other all of these 99 times. But right now, you talk about the last you know 20 years of football between these two teams, losing to SMU is embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. It's I really mean, that would be... That would be a real issue for TCU at this point. Um, this is a much better SMU team than, than we've seen recently. Uh, this is a much more competent SMU team. Sonny Dykes has, has really put a stamp on the program very quickly. Um, and and they, have, they haven't played anybody, but they've looked really, really strong through three games this season. Um, 
that they can score the ball on offense, and, and the defense hasn't been terrible. So uh, while this is a, a better SMU team than we've seen, it's still absolutely a game you have to win if you're TCU. It is. It is. And, you know, this is the 99th meeting between the two teams, and there are no future games scheduled right now between the two teams. I'm, If I had a gun to my head, I'd say that, yes, they will probably play more than after this year. Um, like, it's 99% certain in my mind. Oh, for but sure. I think when you schedule opponents for future seasons, like, you have to be willing to answer a question, and that's why. Like, why did you schedule this team? What's the value of scheduling this team for your program? You know, you look at TCU's future schedule, and you see California, Colorado. You see North Carolina and Duke. You see that next future game against Purdue. You see these games that have uh, legitimate value because you're expanding your footprint as a program. You're playing other Power 5 schools. Um, what's the value of continuing to play SMU when it seems like every time they're on the cusp of recovering from getting the death penalty in the 80s, a coach leaves and then they're kind of right back at square one or June Jones comes along and totally tanks the program. you know, And it's just like they can never get over that hump. And so it's always a lose-lose situation for the Horn Frogs to play that game. Well, and, and I guess the question, though, becomes is, is who do you want to see them play? They're not going to add another Power 5 opponent to the schedule. It doesn't do anyone any good. You're not going to add an FCS opponent. Um, are you wanting a caliber, a team the caliber of Houston? Or would you rather see UTSA or UNT? Um, do you not think that, that maybe right now SMU's trajectory is, is on a better path than UNT's after what they did to the Mean Green last year? last weekend uh that's i mean you always have to find another team to play and if you're wanting to continue with a group of five opponent and you've already got all of these p5 opponents on the docket do you want to play two really difficult out of conference games every year if there's no real upside to doing so i mean i don't i don't know that smu is the only team that checks that box though you know you mentioned houston but you could you could easily call up memphis you could call up Tulsa. I'm just saying, like, there are other teams that fit that mold of not a Power 5 school but present you maybe a competitive option, right? Because Patterson likes to have this kind of order of non-conference where you have your one virtually exhibition game. So for, for us that year, that was this year, that was Arkansas Pine Bluff. You have your one game that's kind of a test just like getting into the rhythm of the season, and that's normally SMU for the Horn Frogs. And then you have your stretch game, that game that really allows you to kind of figure out where you stand in the college football landscape as far as competition goes. You know, that's the Ohio State, that's LSU, that's Arkansas, that's Purdue, that's whoever it might be. That's kind of your stretch game. In reality, frankly, this year it feels like SMU might actually be that stretch game because I think that if you put SMU and Purdue on the same field right now, you, I, you'd have a hard time convincing me that SMU wouldn't uh, win that game, at least at the very least be very competitive in that game. But I just think that there are other opportunities out there beyond kind of just this – you know, 
drab rivalry with SMU where you could get a Memphis in here. You could do a home-and-home home with Tulsa. You could schedule Cincinnati, you know, like other schools that have pretty good trajectories right now. I mean, Tulsa gave Oklahoma State a run for their money. Memphis was sure. vying for a New Year's Six Bowl just a couple years ago. Cincinnati has a pretty good history. I think well, there are other options is, out there. But that's kind of my question, though, too, is is, is there any benefit to playing a better group of five schools? Because I don't know that there is. Like, do you really want to schedule a home and home with Cincinnati and go on the road and lose when when you when you have no real motivation to do so? I mean, we we know darn well he's going to have to win a conference to um, to get into the play the playoffs. They're probably going to have to go undefeated in the conference to do so, or maybe be a one loss team. There's such a risk, and there's very little chance at a reward. You're not going to make. You're not going to get bumped in over a Texas if if you're a two-loss TCU team and you've got a Cincinnati win on your resume, you know, even if you beat them in the conference championship game. Like, I, I just I just don't know that any of those teams move the needle enough to where a win could be enough of a boost or a loss wouldn't damage you irreparably, irreparably which I think a loss kind of would. Well, I mean, that's the case with SMU, too. Like, if you lose to SMU, that you're not – I mean, they're you're written off immediately. So yeah, I don't, I don't true. you know, the lose is always going to be the lose non-conference. Like I'm less worried about that. I'm more worried about, you know, having a competitive football game that doesn't tank your resume because this committee changes year over year. What's what mattered in 2014 didn't matter in 2018, won't matter in 2022. So give yourself, put yourself in the best position to have a resume that is attractive at the end of the year. You're always going to face uh, adversity in a football season. Is it giving you more adversity to play a variety of G5 schools rather than scheduling SMU every year? Not really. I mean, not in the grand scheme of things, but what it does provide is a variety of schools that aren't stigmatized like SMU is right now, I guess fair. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. There's, there's also another reason that you really don't want to play and or lose to SMU. And, and that is simply for their turnover celebration. The bottle service? I know, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, we have the yeah. turnover chain. We've got the turnover pencil. But, of course, That's SMU has one. turnover bottle service. And that is just terrible. It's the most Dallas. I, I can say this as someone who was born and raised in the city of Dallas. That's the most Dallas thing I've ever heard of, is having a bottle service celebration for your turnovers. Yeah, it's really, really terrible. Here, here's you know another not terrible. Interest- you know what's not what? terrible, though? Tell those helmets, what? those old They're Dallas awesome. logo helmets. Those it's were great. pretty stinking awesome. Yeah, those no, those were fabulous. Awesome. But let's get back to what's terrible. Go back to what, what was your terrible thing. Well, here, well, here's another reason that this SMU game takes a little history. I actually just became aware of this fact, and so if I'm late to the party... Uh, I apologize, but did you know that Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist and TCU adjunct professor Mac Ingle is now former TCU adjunct professor Mac Ingle and current SMU adjunct professor Mac Ingle? Melissa, I have I have so many thoughts on this <laughs> issue. It made your voice crack. You have so uh, many thoughts. None of which I'm going to say out loud in these it's moments. Smart. Um, but good for him. 
<laughs> I, I was not aware of that uh, in, until literally just this moment as I was looking at some uh, important facts to share to the audience. And that became the most facts. important fact. That is an important wow. fact. I wonder wow. what his hit piece is going to be like this year then. Yeah, I, I would like to know more about people who know more about this move. Mm-hmm. Very would, interesting. Yeah, I might have to do some research, some yeah. investigating on that. But Melissa, let's talk a little bit about the actual SMU football team because the Ponies are 3-0. They seem to have some pretty good momentum. Um, they have a 37-30 win over Arkansas State. They have a 49-27 to win over North Texas. They have a 42-17 to win over Texas State on their resume. Each of those weeks, they've seen an improvement defensively in yards allowed and points allowed. Um, so that's something to, of interest. They've got Texas transfer Shane Buchel, who's looked pretty good at quarterback. Um, he's got... It seems like SMU always has a couple of good wide receivers. This year it's James Prochet, who TCU fans know pretty well at this point, and Reggie Robertson, um, supported by a decent running game. What have you seen from this SMU team so far that has you asking questions about this game on Saturday? The biggest thing is just the attitude change. I mean, yeah. they, they've always gotten up for this game, but, but they're playing like a complete football team, and – Sonny Dykes has always been a good coach, but he's definitely put a little bit of a Gary Patterson stamp on this program after spending a year serving as an offensive analyst for TCU. Uh, there's a more business-like approach. There's, there's a more disciplined football team. Uh, they still don't have the, the talent that, you know, they're going to need to truly, like, have a shot to win the AAC, but but this is a this team is just playing with a completely different mindset. Um, they can put up points in bunches when they need to. The defense is, is competent, um, which I think is a, is a positive thing. And, and they have a quarterback who's played big-time college football and just looks like a leader. Uh, mm-hmm. Shane Bouchelle has some flaws as a quarterback. That's why he's no longer at Texas. Um, but the dude can really sling it. I mean, he's completing over 66% of his passes. He already has over 871 yards on the season. He's got five touchdowns. He does have three interceptions, but... Um, I think what, what he has is, is he has his guys believing in him. And uh, when you have talented skill players, which SMU absolutely does at the running back and wide receiver positions, and you've got a quarterback who nothing is too big for him in that moment, uh, that's a dangerous football team coming to TCU on Saturday afternoon. It's really interesting to see how far they've come since the bowl game that Sonny Dykes coached them in in 2017 Mm -hmm. when they just got like absolutely steamrolled and people people were jokingly calling to fire Sonny Dykes like in the second quarter of the first game that he coached um, because it looked awful and then you fast forward to 2019 and like you said they've just got like this different swagger about them yeah and I'll be honest with you I've said repeatedly over the course of the offseason and the first few weeks of the season that Purdue did not concern me I think I said it on the podcast last week. Like, I was not concerned about Purdue. I'm a little concerned about SMU. It's been seven yeah. years since TCU beat, or since they beat TCU. They've been dragged through the mud. They had what they thought was kind of their coach of the future. He's now at Arkansas. They had all of this hype around a quarterback. He's now at Arkansas. They got a coach in that everybody was displeased with right out of the gate. But now it seems like the tides are turning 
in favor of SMU. Not necessarily in the matchup with TCU, but just generally as a program, it seems like things are starting to get back on course for the Mustangs. And if that's the case, now this is my caveat to my argument earlier where I don't think that there's a point to continue playing this game. If SMU can get back to being a 7-8 win team with consistency every year, then there's tremendous value in playing them every year. Because I think from a recruiting perspective, then you really have the edge in DFW. Right now, I don't think there's an edge in beating SMU when it comes to recruitment. But you get that aspect of it coming into play. And then, yeah, I think that that game is incredibly valuable for TCU to play. Um, Melissa, this is, this is a game. I mean, there's talent on both sides of the ball for SMU. You look at, I've named Prochet and Robertson. We've talked about Buchel a little bit. But, you know, they've got a running back in uh, Xavier Jones who has seven rushing touchdowns already this year. You know, they've got another running back, Kamon Freeman, who has almost 300 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown this year. They've got a sophomore kid, or maybe he's a redshirt freshman, who's got three rushing touchdowns this year. Like, they can run the ball a little bit. And defensively, like I said, they've gotten better and better each week as far as total yards and points but there is one thing to note and i think this is really going to end up being what helps tcu out in this game and i i i made my prediction today in my quick look at smu uh, y'all can go look at that i'll say the same score when we get to the end of this podcast and we make the prediction but smu gave up four yards a carry on the ground to arkansas state they gave up five yards a carry on the ground to north texas 0.6 yards per carry to texas state but i think that that's just texas state like that's more of a Texas State issue than it was an SMU yeah. running defense issue. How big of a game do you think Shewo and Darius could potentially have if this running defense for SMU doesn't stiffen up a little bit? So here's the question. We have not seen Darius, I don't believe in his history, has ever gone over the 100-yard mark in back-to-back weeks. He's only had 500-yard rushing games his entire TCU career, which very much shocked me when I learned that this morning. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now a lot of that has been injuries. But even, like, after the Oklahoma State game a couple of years ago when that was kind of his, his coming out party before the Ohio State game last year, he didn't mm-hmm. do much for the next several weeks. And he didn't do much after the Ohio State game for a couple of weeks. So yeah. the question becomes, and this is where him being in better shape and, and being a little bit faster and a little bit better conditioned, can he come out? Saturday and do something he's never done before and that's string together consecutive dominant performances and, and that's what is going to be remains to be seen because we've seen clearly that TCU's going to have to rely on the running game to score points mm-hmm. at least at this point and we've seen an SMU team that should give up some rushing yards as you just pointed out um, Shewo is a weapon and, and is somebody who can contribute but if you really want to get this defense on its heels you need a guy like Jet who, who just has the speed and is a game breaker and a difference maker. And he was, you know, ripping off those 10, 15, 20 yard runs. And then Shayla was coming in and, and turning, you know, four yards at the point of contact into 14 and a first down. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because those players, those, those secondary players were so stinking gassed trying to get Anderson from behind that, that they just didn't have enough to, to wrap up and hold on. So, uh, I think that TCU can easily have a 200-plus rushing yard game on Saturday, mm-hmm. but I think that the winning formula is probably closer to 250, maybe 300 again. 
I wouldn't be surprised by that. And I think, too, there's a real opportunity here because, like I said, SMU's defense has improved week over week. Some of that could be because of the decline in competition week over week. I do think Arkansas State is probably the best team that they've played to this point. Um, with Texas Tech being, or Texas State, pardon me, uh, being kind of the weakest team that they've played to this point. Because they've also allowed seven passing touchdowns through three games. And they gave up, you know, over 300 passing yards to Arkansas State, over 250 passing yards to North Texas, um, and over 200 passing yards to Texas State. Uh, I think that this is a really unique opportunity because, like I said, I'm a little nervous about SMU. But there's definitely an opportunity there for the running game to really establish itself once again and kind of be um, kind of the leading edge for TCU. But also, because of what it seems like there may be some deficiencies in the secondary for SMU, like if, if, if Patterson is legit about what he said during the teleconference on Monday – and he backs that up with more comments on Tuesday of, like, they're going to ride the guy who's doing it well. Like, this might really be Max's opportunity to establish himself as the starter. If he can, if he can find a little bit of touch, if guys hold on to the football for him, I think the opportunity is really there for Max to establish himself as the QB1 for TCU. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's going to have to. I, I think that for TCU to, to reach its goals, one of these guys is going to have to take the reins, and I think for TCU to be the most successful, you hope that that guy is is Max. Um, I, I do want to point out, I, I think that one thing we should talk about SMU, they had five sacks against Mason Fine, um, which is which is a pretty impressive number for, for a guy that can scramble around a little bit. Um, sure. They held him to right around 50% completions with just one touchdown, 152 yards. Um, that's a pretty elite level quarterback who this defense did really kind of uh, force into some tough situations. But yeah, I think I think all, they have all the confidence in the world. Um, but if there's something to remember, it's that they played Arkansas State, North Texas, and Texas State. Um, and, and two of those games were at home. So uh, we'll see what they do on, on the road. They had a tough tough win at Arkansas State, which is impressive, as you said. Um, especially that was a really, really emotional game for that program. Their head coach had just lost his wife to cancer. Um, you know, they played with a little bit extra juice that night. But um, this is going to be a different game. You're going to see – you have a chance to learn a lot more about SMU than you do TCU in this matchup. But you hope that the Frogs uh, can come out and continue their dominant play. And I have a feeling they'll be up for this game uh, more so than the fans will for sure. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, not to say that there are just, like, complete scrubs on the defensive side of the ball for SMU. They've got some really, really talented guys back there. Patrick Nelson – is a guy to keep an eye on if you're a TCU fan. He's a safety. He's got 20 tackles. He's got he's got five sacks by himself in the first three games, wow. which is impressive for a safety. He's got a pick. And then you've got uh, the UCLA transfer, Brandon Stevens, who's also made a pretty good impact back there. He's got five uh, pass breakups already this season. So, I mean, there's talent back there. They've shown that they're talented, and they've taken advantage of lesser competition. And I think they're kind of in the same position that TCU is in, where you've done it against lesser competition, and now it's time to maybe take that next step. We'll see if they can take that next step on Saturday against a TCU offense that still has a very significant weakness. Um, so we'll just we'll kind of see, right? It's 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 immovable object. It's like a very low end version of immovable object versus unstoppable force. Yeah, absolutely. But which one is the immovable object? It might be TCU's passing game. Yeah. It really might be. <laughs> Honestly. Unfortunately. Yeah. 
Rip. All right, Melissa, let's take another break, and then we will finish up our SME preview and get into some predictions. All right, we are back, and let's wrap up our SMU preview, Melissa, by talking about what you think defensively TCU can do against this SMU offense that has shown out a little bit in these first three games. Well, I think that the number one thing that, that what we've always kind of known to be a little bit of TCU kryptonite is a quarterback that can really move in the pocket, and James Bouchelle is, is a pretty good runner. Um, he's not the biggest guy. Uh, he's not the fastest, but, but he's really effective on the ground game, and I think keeping him in the pocket – is going to be key. Um, I think that, that if we see Jeff Gladney max, matched up with uh, Prochet, that, that Gladney is going to do a really nice job against him. He's always been great when he's needed to shut down one guy, especially one guy against SMU, to Zach Cortland Sutton. Um, and if mm. they can keep Prochet from going over the top, then I feel pretty good um, about closing down that passing game. But I, I think what it comes down to is, is what does the uh, quarterback pressure look like? You know, how, how aggressive are they? Can those can those defensive ends really get loose? Um, can Ross Blacklock occupy two, three guys in the middle? Um, can Corey Bethley kind of break through and, and have a big game? This could be a great opportunity for him to make an impact too. So um, I, I think as long as, as they're getting pressure and they're getting into the backfield like they were last weekend, then the TCU defense can be super effective um, against SMU. Although I do expect the Ponies to score more against the TCU defense than any team has to this point this season. I think that's reasonable. I think that what you see is a, the most balanced offense that TCU will have seen to this point because, I mean, it, Purdue's running game was just non-existent, and their passing game mm-hmm. would have been a lot stronger had Sindelar been in there. Uh, and then, I mean, Arkansas Pine Bluff was Arkansas Pine Bluff. So that's I think that's a very reasonable statement to make that this is the best offense that TCU's defense has seen. And you you project that out and you say, okay, well, this is the best offense they've seen to this point in SMU. And then the next week you have Kansas coming to town and they just like very surprisingly hung 42 points up on Boston College yeah. at Boston College. Okay, and then you've got Iowa State after that whose offense has struggled so far this year, but defensively, you know, you've got to go to Ames and win that football game. Okay, so now is like the real opportunity to fine-tune some things as a defense, get a little challenge under your belt, and then maybe at that point you feel like you're really prepared to enter Big 12 play. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the key is, is can you, do, do you finally face a team that's going to give you a real challenge and how do you respond? Yeah. And, and I, and I think that, you know, we, we keep saying, we just, we still don't know much about this TCU offense. And so uh, this is a game where they're going to have to score some points and it's not going to be by just holding on to the ball for 40 minutes. That the SMU, SMU is a rivalry game. They're going to, you're going to get their best effort. They're going to make, uh, they're going to force TCU to make some plays and can Max, Dugan or Alex Felton do that um, and keep the defense on the heels? And can TCU's defense find a way to get in the end zone? So I think that could be a, a key to victory as well. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I think the, the three big keys for TCU in this game are running the ball, making smart decisions in the passing game, and then just letting the defense kind of be that aggressive defense that we've seen through the first two weeks, force yeah. SMU into mistakes, uh, and really try to take advantage of some turnovers. Absolutely. Couldn't agree yeah. more. So let's um, get into some predictions now, Melissa. Uh, before we do that, a note. The Big 12 is the only Power 5 conference that has 100% of its teams with a winning record at this point in the season. Is that something to even brag about yet? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. At, at the end of the day, they're not playing 
a schedule that's that much harder or that much easier than anybody else. Um, and going five and two this weekend against Power Five opponents, uh, that's that's a great weekend for a Power Five conference in week three of the season. You've got Kansas State winning up on the road um, against Mississippi State, Starkville. You've got, like you mentioned, Kansas going into Boston College and getting a big win. TC going up to Purdue. I mean, none of those teams are going to be elite conference contenders, but you're still taking, you know, Kansas and, and Kansas State are supposed to be, oh, and, and West Virginia, you know, beating NC State. Like, mm-hmm. those are supposed to be your three of your bottom four teams in the Big 12, and all three of them put together really convincing wins where they looked like they were clearly the better team on the field. So Kansas State got a little sloppy, but, but at the end of the day, like, that it wasn't like that game was completely in doubt late. So uh, there's a lot to prove. We'll see. But I, I think you have to say top to bottom so far, the Big 12 is showing that, that this is the most competitive conference in college football. Um, there is not a – there's not a walkover win anywhere you go. Uh, I mean, Kansas, that Manhattan game, uh, you know, against Kansas State on the road, is starting to look really, really foreboding. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, Texas Tech loses loses Alan Bowman now for six to eight weeks, but they look like a lot more disciplined football team. They're not going to be a walkover in Lubbock either. So. Especially defensively, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's a it, it's it's great and horrifying if you're a TCU fan. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, all right, so let's get into some predictions here. Iowa State hosts Louisiana Monroe. Iowa State obviously trying to bounce back from quite the ridiculous day uh, hosting game day against your rival, multiple weather delays, low-scoring defensive affair, and then to lose the game in the final minutes because a guy trying to block on a punt return runs into the returner and the ball bounces off them and Iowa recovers, and that's how you lose that football game. It's going to take a minute to get yourself back mentally from a loss like that. Louisiana Monroe is not the greatest team in the world, but they're not also like the biggest pushover for a non-conference game. Does Iowa State have any kind of hangover against Louisiana Monroe this week after their first two football games where they went to triple overtime with Northern Iowa and then lost that heartbreaker to Iowa? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Louisiana Monroe is going to have them on the ropes the first half. I fully expect Iowa State to win this game, but um, I think it's going to be a little bit of a battle, and, and I think that, that there's going to be uh, a little bit of a wake-up call moment for this team at halftime. Iowa State's at a real turning point of their season already, just two games into it, because losing that game that way, all of the emotion and the energy that went into um, showing up and like, playing against uh, your biggest rival and then having to sit through all those delays. Uh, this could be a really, really uh, difficult point for the for the Cyclones. And my guess is, is that they turn it around just in time to uh, give TC all they can handle here in a couple of weeks. But um, I think they win, but I think it's ugly. I think it's they end up getting some uh, comfortable lead late. But I fully expect this to be way too close to the game for way too long. Yeah, it's definitely either going to be that or they're going to come out so mad that they just absolutely drill Louisiana Monroe. There won't be any what? in between. It won't be like a casual 39-10 to 10 win. It'll be like well, that's, 50 or 17-14. to 14. Well, that, that's really the question for this team is when Matt Campbell talks about building a program and changing the culture, these are the games where you figure out if you've done that. Yeah. And so if they come out angry – and, and put it on Louisiana Monroe, then 
then I think Campbell can look back and say, okay, I've got this ship pointed in the right direction. Um, but if they struggle, then he's going to know that he's got a lot of growing up to do in his locker room still. Absolutely. Absolutely. The next game on the docket for us, Melissa, uh, is between two teams who we both picked to lose last week, Kansas and West Virginia. Kansas hosting the Mountaineers. What do you even make of this game at this point? I mean, this is still, you argue, probably for ninth or tenth place here, depending on what happens with Tech. Um, West Virginia looked like the most incompetent team in the Power Five up until last week, but Neil Brown really got things going in the right direction. So uh, I think because this game's in Morgantown, because a program like Kansas, who hasn't won on the road against Power Five opponent in, in a while, probably lets us go to their heads a little bit. And I think it's an absolute slog that the Mountaineers come out on top. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing... Like, I just can't wrap my arms around the idea of West Virginia losing to Kansas. Um, did you see, by the way, Les Miles in his press conference talking about what he anticipates from the Kansas crowd on Saturday? No. Uh, it, it was very interesting. He was like, we're going to be loud, and people are going to have fun, and they're going to show up, and they're going to eat. And they're going to drink, and then he like turns to someone on the side and says, they can drink in the stadium now, right? Yeah, they're going to drink, and they're going to have fun, and they're going to be loud, and we're just going to come, and we're going to play as hard as we possibly can. It was like the most generic, here's wow. how our people are going to be. I so, so I misread I, that, by the way. I said that, that Kansas was on the road. They're at home, so now I'm yeah, shouting it's, myself. It's, it's, at, it's in Lawrence. Which means nothing, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, as far as home field advantage, but I, I am going to pick the Jayhawks in this game. Okay. I think because you picked West Virginia, I think that there's something brewing in Lawrence. I think that West Virginia is for this season, especially, going to be a completely different team at home than they are on the road. Give me the Jayhawks in yeah, a close, really weird game. Yeah, I now realizing that this is a home game for the Jayhawks, I'm, I'm tempted to change my pick. I'll go ahead and leave it and stand by what I said, but uh, yeah, I, I won't be surprised if Kansas wins this one. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's definitely for like who's better than who in the bottom tier of the Big Twelve this year. Yeah, for sure. All right, next game: Baylor travels to Rice. I don't know why. But Baylor is traveling to Rice. Texas just obliterated Rice. Baylor's probably going to do the same thing, in my opinion. Yeah. 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 Uh, Baylor is, is quietly stewing, or maybe not so quietly stewing, about TC being ranked and, and the Bears not. Um, I think that they're going to take it out on, on uh, the poor Owls this weekend, and, and I expect that to be a pretty easy blowout. I definitely agree with you there. I definitely agree with you there. Texas hosts Oklahoma State. What do you make of this game? It's a really, really interesting game. Um, Texas, you know, came out on fire after after a heartbreaker against LSU and, like you said, just obliterated the Owls. Uh, Oklahoma State is, is another one of those teams that uh, seems like they, they feel like they're being undervalued despite being 3-0. Um, but they struggled with Tulsa a little bit last weekend early. So I think uh, this is a shootout. 
but that Texas ultimately is just the better football team. And after losing in Stillwater last year, I expect them to bounce back and pull away in the fourth quarter for a double-digit win. I agree. I think Texas wins this game. I think Oklahoma State has air conditioning in their locker room. <laughs> um, but they have they struggled significantly with Tulsa last week. They didn't really pull away from Oregon State until late. Uh, there are some question marks, I think, with the new offensive coordinator and trying to get some new pieces involved, that freshman quarterback. Uh, obviously, Tylen Wallace is a monster, and you never want to mm-hmm. discount a team that has a guy like him. Um, but I think there's just too much offensive talent for Texas at this point for them to fall fall behind an Oklahoma State team and lose okay. that football yeah. game. So, yeah, give me the horns as well. Other big games from around the country, we'll kind of quick hit these. Melissa, Utah travels to USC on Friday night. The Utes are undefeated. They're ranked 10th in the country. USC has coming is coming off of a really heartbreaking loss to BYU in a very strange way. Who wins this game on Friday night? It's a weird game. Um, we're still trying to figure out who the heck USC is, but uh, Utah stays hyped, and I think that they, they're able to go into SC and win easily. Yeah, give me the Utes as well. Number 13, Wisconsin hosts number 11, Michigan. Michigan really struggled with the ground game of Army a week ago. Wisconsin has arguably the best running back in the country. Give me the Badgers in this game, and it might not be close. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think Wisconsin gets this done. Michigan is annually the most overrated team. Uh, Wisconsin is the most disappointing in the postseason each year, it seems like. So uh, I think the Badgers will, will keep winning until it matters, and then they will find a way to lose in a – Horribly embarrassing fashion. Hopefully not 77 to nothing to Ohio State again. Yeah. Screw um, those guys forever. Right. Forever. Number 17, Texas A&M, hosting number eight, Auburn. Aggies obviously will be without one of their key cogs at running back for the rest of the year. What do you make of this game? Uh, Aggie co-worker of mine I overheard this morning. I, I chose not to engage in the conversation. Um but called this the turning point of the Aggie season, and I don't think that he was wrong. Um, getting a win here on your home field against a ranked opponent probably propels them to being competitive in the SEC West and, and being you know, maybe an eight- or nine-win team, potentially. A loss probably dooms you to bowl eligibility at best. Um, I think the Aggies are going to do it, and the hype train is going to get rolling. I don't think Auburn is all that good. Um, I think they got a great win against Oregon, but this is not a team that I would be putting any money on anytime soon. Um, and so I think the Aggies upset and the hype train goes completely crazy after this win. Yeah, a done this weird thing where they've actually been very, very competitive with top 10 teams at home mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. Uh, you saw that in the LSU and Clemson games last year. You saw that a couple times in 2017 as well. Um I think I just I have such a hard time picking Texas A&M because you never know which Texas A&M you're going to get. It seems like it's always like the best version or the worst version, and there's really no in between. And we've seen more, I think, in high leverage games this year of the worst version of Texas A&M than the best. Granted, yeah. they've played Texas State, Clemson, and Lamar, so it's not like the sample size of high leverage football has been very great. Um, so I think it's a very close football game. I wouldn't be surprised if either team wins. I'm going to take Auburn on the road because wow. I think Gus Malzahn has that thing going in a really good way right now. And I think A&M has a couple of 
substantial question marks. They have they're banged up along their defensive line. Like I said, they lost a running back for the year, and I wonder if some of that those questions and some of the inexperience at the position uh, for those guys that are hurt, the guys filling in for them. I wonder if that just opens up the door just enough for Auburn to get their foot in there and get a win. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. The last game that we're going to pick of uh, games across the country, number three, Georgia, hosting number seven, Notre Dame. Is Notre Dame for real this year? No. No, definitely not. No, they're going to get exposed big time in Athens. I agree. Ian Book is not the real deal. No, he's not good. Go he's dogs. Not great. Go and then lastly, 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 Melissa, give me your prediction for the TCU SMU football game. I think that, that this is going to be a really, really close game. Uh, probably TCU's going to trail early. Um, it feels like they always jump out to a two-score lead on us at home. Um, so I expect a bunch of unhappy fans at halftime. Um, but I think ultimately TCU's defense and talent went out in the second half and in a, a you know one- to two-score deficit and after the first or second quarter turns into a one- or two-score win by the end of it. And, and TCU pulls away late for like a – Give me like 37, 23 or something along those lines. I think it's a little bit um, of a bigger gap than that. I think SMU's offense, while very good, has not seen a talent like TCU's defense to this point this season. I don't think they've seen a talent like this TCU defense when they've played TCU the last few years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they have the ability to really move the ball effectively against a unit like this. And so I think Max gets it figured out a little bit. I think the run game continues to be dominant, and I think the defense, while giving up more points than they've given up previously, uh, will still be fairly fairly dominant. And so give me TCU 38, SMU 17. I like it. And that, I think, will just about do it then for us, Melissa, for this episode of the Frogs War Podcast. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much when you listen to us on this podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. You can check out all of the stuff on frogswar.com. And please, please, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Frogs War podcast on iTunes. You can also find us on Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are found. With that all and being also, said. Oh, come visit us, Punch Bowl Social, yes. 930, uh, 930 and 1021, 630. I believe. Yo, well, yes. no, September, yeah, September 30th. 30th at 630. Yes. October 21st, also at 630. We'll make Facebook events for these. That might be a good idea. Make it happen. Okay. Anyways, I'm Jamie Plunkett. Well, it's a Let's go, Frogs. Let's go, Frogs. Woo.